The title, as you may be already aware today, of this message is A Great God. So, after giving it some thought, I decided a few weeks ago that when we resumed, that I'd speak from the book of Jonah. Now, you, you may know that the centuries ago, the Bible was divided up into chapters and verses to make it easier to reference certain parts of scripture and it turns out it's not always the case but in in this case those four chapters do provide us with four logical sections of the story of Jonah and so I intend to do one message per chapter over the next four weeks and so if God helps me what I'd like to do is bring out the, the, the main teachings of the book, you know, pr pr practical things that can be applied to our lives, but more importantly, show how all these things relate to the salvation found in Jesus Christ. It's always been the case that the most prominent feature in the story of Jonah is a relatively insignificant one. Of all the untold thousands of children's books written about Jonah, I doubt there's a single one that doesn't have a picture of a great big smiling whale on the front. Now, as you know, writers of children's books, they, they want to find those elements that will grab the attention of the average child best. And so most of these books... Unfortunately, they major on the big fish, and so they leave children with really a wrong impression. Well, ha having um, we, we've just listened to the book of Jonah read for us, and we're reminded that the fish is mentioned in just two verses. And now, God had his reasons, I am sure, for introducing that particular bizarre element into Jonah's story. But really, the, the, the fish itself has no real bearing on any of the things I want to bring out. I thought I would comment on this issue of Jonah being swallowed by a fish, though, because some people find it hard to believe. Now, a very, a very small number of Bible commentators have suggested that the whole whale episode is just a metaphor for Jonah's depression. But it tells us, it tells us that the fish was appointed by the Lord. That's what it says. We also, we also find uh, Jesus, don't we, in the New Testament, referring to Jonah's time inside this creature as a sort of, as a picture of his own descent into the grave. Outside of scripture, I'm aware of just one historical account of a man being swallowed by a whale. So, some guys had caught this whale, they were preparing it, the whalers were, were, were you know, cutting it and butchering it and so on. And, and when its stomach was exposed, the stomach of this whale was exposed, they, they saw something inside that was moving and they realised it was a man and he was alive. And th this story has been passed down for centuries, although there is some doubt about whether it's true. 
Um, sailors have a reputation for, the, for these things. But, but nevertheless, it still might interest you to know that, I mean, only a few weeks ago, I mean, 2021, a whale did in fact swallow a a sailor who'd fallen overboard in fact come to think of it i think he was diving for he was diving for something on on the bottom you know the I don't know if it was oysters or sponges or something i don't know but he was diving and anyway the, the, a whale swallowed him unintentionally, of course, and he thought he was going to die in there. And then he saw this little circle of light, and the whale had obviously opened its mouth. And then the creature um, shook its head violently from side to side, and then the the the, the diver then was was flung out, and he was taken to hospital. But he had some broken bones, and that's all. He lived to tell the tale. By rights, if someone was swallowed by one of these sea creatures, well, one of the ones that's able to, to swallow a person whose esophagus is wide enough to swallow a human, the victim would soon be dead. The, the, they'd either suffocate or they'd be slowly dissolved in the, in the stomach acids. And so this leads us to understand that God used natural means, the whale, a real, a real, or a real fish, whatever it was. He used that, but he miraculously preserved Jonah's life while inside. Jonah then himself, he was from a small town. It, it was not far from Nazareth. So, of course, where, where Jesus um, spent his time as a lad. He, Jonah's mentioned in Second uh, Kings. Uh, if you want to look this up later, it's in chapter 14. And it tells us there that obviously he's a prophet. His own his own uh, hometown is now identified as the, the modern village of El Meshed. And if you were to visit that place today, I'm sure the locals, for a small fee, would, would show you what they say is Jonah's tomb. I don't know. When it said there that Jonah fled to Joppa, he went down to Joppa, it says there, what's that, verse verse 3 that is. Well, you might remember Joppa, it might, might ring a bell, because it was here that uh, centuries uh, later, the Apostle Peter would have this vision. Remember the vision of all the unclean animals. And it's also from Joppa that Peter was was uh, called by um, the centurion Cornelius to come and visit. And that, that can be found in Acts chapter 10. The main theme of the book then has nothing to do with a giant sea creature. The overall message is about is about God's grace and mercy shown to undeserving sinners. We're reminded that the gift of repentance and faith is given to whoever the Sovereign Lord sees fit. He, as it were, responds to people's repentance, but it's a repentance which he himself gave. 
as we consider Jonah's um, attempt to escape God's calling, we should take that as a warning that running from God's will is pointless and only invites trouble. And so for that reason, I think there's a lesson in here for both unbelievers and believers alike. When I um, when I read this book, I started reading this several weeks ago again. I started meditating on, on the verses. Uh, something new did stand out for me, and it was the word great. It cropped up several times. And I investigated the, the, the root word, if you like, and discovered that the, the same word appears in Jonah in different forms. So we, we have words like exceedingly, but it means great. And so apart from a great city, we hear of a great tempest, great fear among the sailors, and of course the great fish. And I concluded there must have been a reason that the author was inspired to use that word so much. And I realised everything described as great, mighty or exceeding in this book says something about the greatness of God. And so I've chosen three references on which to, to, to base my message today. And so we have then a great city. A great city. By the standards of that day, Nineveh was a significant city. It would eventually become the capital of the Assyrian Empire. Now, given the clues in this book, Bible students have tried to work out how big Nineveh was. There are, there are some thoughts we can quite confidently dismiss. When it says Nineveh was a city of three days journey we might be tempted to read that as meaning it took three days to get from one side to the other but that would mean it was a city 30 to 50 miles in diameter no ancient city at that time came anywhere near to being that big there are two then likely explanations. So firstly, it could mean that it took three days to get around a city. In other words, it would take Jonah three days to, to preach, to preach in every quarter of the city. Well, secondly, the, the description could be referring not to Nineveh proper, but greater Nineveh. Now, we can use a modern example, a local example, to make that point clearly. It will only make sense to people in the UK. <laughs> but when we refer to Manchester, we could be referring to the city proper or to Greater Manchester, which includes many other towns. So in the same way, there, there were many other uh, cities around Nineveh and which could be um, regarded as, as, if you like, Greater Nineveh. And so th therefore to travel from one side of this larger area to the other would indeed have taken several days. Nineveh then, they, they were Assyrian people and they were cruel. They were infamous for the cruelty. Their cruelly inventive ways 
they tortured and killed people and they weren't ashamed of their violence either they immortalized their savagery in art because stone carvings exist to this day showing the Assyrians impaling people flaying the skin off prisoners taking people's heads off in all kinds of strange ways and so on I think it's the most natural thing in the world to detest savagery and hope that it receives due punishment I sometimes watch these uh, US uh, crime documentaries with Karen there that, that are a great many of them um, and you know you might see some home invader and he goes in and he kills a family completely innocent family kills them and he, he, he takes maybe $20 and he, he's happy with that it's just like animal like savagery now in these programs the culprit always gets caught that's why it's on telly and I find myself hoping that they've been found guilty in, in a US state that still has capital punishment now I know it's a controversial subject even among the Lord's people but it just feels that justice has really been done if that criminal is put to death by the state so why am I confessing this to you I'm, I'm sharing this to provide an example of how this deep down desire for justice can lead us to a desire to want savage people dead really and so hopefully you might be able to therefore understand Jonah a little bit better who who seem reluctant for the cruel enemies of Israel to be given an opportunity to repent but if our thinking is in line with God's we'll want the state to wield the sword of justice righteously but we'll far more greatly desire the salvation of the wicked we may just find ourselves having a sinful attitude towards the lost in our own day when we pray for God to have mercy let's be honest it's easier to pray for some respectable person who visits our church one day than than someone who's part of a, a gang of thugs who've maybe vandalized the church and threatened the congregation with violence but we need to remind ourselves that with God nothing is impossible although salvation of anyone comes at a great cost to God he can as easily save a violent thug as he can a respectable churchgoer and when he does that sort of thing is it not marvelous in our eyes when a murderer turns to Jesus Christ for full and free salvation we often describe that person as a, a great trophy of God's grace such is the magnitude of the transformation between the man before and the man afterwards in our account God has commissioned Jonah to take a message of impending judgment to the Ninevites their general wickedness and their particular hatred for God's people has reached it reached a level which caused God to announce their soon destruction and from this description of the city as being great we learn that God himself is great in his threat made through the mouth of Jonah 
he shows that even the largest city of men cannot withstand his judgment should it fall on them. We think about the advanced but wicked cities of the plain back in Abraham's day. Sodom and all its sister towns were devastated by the Lord. He's a God of great might and power and saying he has great power is obviously an understatement. He is almighty, all powerful and this means he can also burn this entire world of ours to the ground. Many believers think that is what God's going to do when he shuts down our world. However he does it, the world that you and I know is coming to an end. All the streets and houses eradicated. All the great skyscrapers reduced to nothing. And more shocking is the fate of mankind itself. All those who've died throughout history in rebellion to God will be resurrected. But it won't be a glorious resurrection like the, the, the believer has. But a damned one through an abundance of evidence against them. The ruling for all will be guilty and the sentence the outer darkness and they, those people will have eternity to regret their opposition to God and the mocking of his people and, this, and you know this should sadden us you see although we happily bow before the sovereign will of God knowing he will be glorified in the judgment of the wicked. We at the same time maintain a feeling of regret. It's not going against God's express wishes to feel like that. It's, it's because we recognise the only reason we're not part of that doomed multitude is the grace of God. And so we pray for the salvation of people in our circle of family friends and the people we've encountered in our lives who maybe we're just in contact with occasionally through Facebook or something and we don't know whether they're God's chosen elect people or not we don't know whether God is going to save them or not and so the, the spirit of our prayers is one of pleading for their salvation but ultimately desiring God's will be done if his will is different from ours that great city Nineveh this great mega city planet earth God will do with them as he sees fit and we will glorify him for it but there's a flip side to this fact The greatness of God also means that no city is too big or too wicked for God to have mercy on it. I very much doubt whether God these days deals with people, you know, according to small geographical locations like we see in the Bible. I mean, for example, the church now is no longer confined to one uh, small area. But the church is a body of people peppered throughout every nation of the world. Uh, 
when we talk about the greatness of God seen in his mercy today we we need to remember he's still able to save large numbers of people in a short space of time now his practice throughout church history seems to be to draw in his elect people one here and one there you know just in the ones and the twos steadily increasing the size of his kingdom but we, I think we should at least be open to the possibility that any incidence of the preaching of the gospel can be used by God to save many, many people. We again remind ourselves that also that, that no one's too wicked for the mercy of God to have its way people in the world I know I've spoken to them they have trouble believing that murderers uh, rapists paedophiles animal abusers and so on can have their sins forgiven by God and the reason they can't believe this is they place those people in the bad category and themselves in the good category they're blind you see to the magnitude of their own sin they think sin is those extreme things which get people banged up in jail for years. I mean, how shocked will these people be? How unbelievable it will seem to them it will seem to them at the judgment when they see some of the vilest people who've ever lived standing over there in the ranks of the redeemed having had their sins forgiven and awaiting entry into the glorious eternal life God's prepared for them. Meanwhile, the people who haven't done those extreme things, the people who've, in their own eyes, behaved themselves and been good citizens, will have to face the reality that something as simple, something as simple as their pride, is enough to damn them, let alone all the other things they've done it says here in first chronicles 16 and verse 5 it says for great is the lord and greatly to be praised he also is to be feared above all gods let us consider then this next point this next example a great storm great storm so Jonah had decided he didn't want to take on this particular mission he came up he came up with this cunning plan he'd run away from God I don't know whether Jonah was out of his mind at that point and genuinely thought if he got far enough away God would leave him be alone or God couldn't reach him alternatively it could be he wanted to get as far away as possible so that even if God did drag him back, kicking and screaming, it would take more time. So, in other words, it would it could have been a delay tactic. Well, either way, it seems he didn't want the Ninevites to hear the word of the Lord. He goes down to the local seaport and he gets on a boat. Probably some Phoenician, uh, Phoenician vessel, a uh, and it's going to Tarshish. We don't know. We don't know where that is for certain. It could, it could be in southern Spain. 
so he, he gets on this boat and, and then God sends this mighty tempest, this storm, which puts the boat in danger. Now we read that we read that um, the mariners themselves were frightened and they were experienced seafarers. So they, they must have viewed this storm as very serious. It was normal practice in that situation as a, as a sort of last resort to dump the cargo, the expensive cargo, the food, everything would go overboard because obviously a lighter ship was less likely to sink. And we read too that they um, also, they called out to their gods. Each man cried out. It says, each man cried out to his God. It says, verse 5. The heathen, of course, had numerous gods. There's a, there's a God for the sea, a God for the land, a God for the sky, and so on. And I think it was quite common that the pagans who had numerous gods, that they would, they would pray to as many of the gods as possible because the more they prayed to, the more likely it was they'd find one who'd be sympathetic to their plight. Eventually, the captain uh, finds his passenger. He finds Jonah um, and he's asleep down below in one of the cabins there. So he shouts at him to, to, to get up and pray. Start to pray to you know whichever God he believes in. At some point it was decided that their their fate their fate was as a result of the gods being angry at someone on board. So to find out who it was they cast lots. It was a common enough practice in those days, and you might recall it was even used by the Lord's apostles on one occasion. And there were, there were different methods used. Sometimes they used dice and sometimes stones. But, surprise, surprise, Jonah's name came out. So they quizzed him. They wanted to know where he was from and other things, and presumably that would help them decide which god had been offended. And we note there how God's sovereignty overruled their superstitious uh, practice. He ensured that Jonah was identified as the culprit. But I think God's power is seen most clearly in the storm itself. The sailors would soon learn that Jonah's God had power over all creation. He had the power to raise storms and quell them. And a God who has power to control the movement of an immeasurably heavy body of water could presumably do anything. When he's quizzed, Jonah comes out with a short statement, a short confession of faith. He tells them he's one of the Hebrews and he serves the very God who made the heavens and the earth. Friends, when we come to accept God created the heavens and the earth, we'll believe he can do anything. Curiously, some people have difficulty believing certain miracles in the Bible. It's usually because they're quite bizarre ones. 
But if you ever find yourself thinking that way, remind yourself about the creation. I'm trusting that you believe God is, in fact, the creator of this universe. And, of course, any miracle that he performs within his created universe demands less power than the creation itself. So we should have no doubt about his ability to perform any miracle at all. Well, I finally want to just mention the terror that was felt by the mariners as an example uh, whereby we can show God's power once again. So what do we see next in the story? Jonah's made this declaration and it's when the sailors hear about which God has been offended they become terrified. You see, they'll have been familiar with the God of the Hebrews. They'll know that that God secured those Hebrews a place in Canaan, overthrowing all the previous inhabitants. And perhaps they've heard numerous other stories about how that God, Jehovah, had done all these great miracles for people. The reputation of God was such that these men were greatly afraid. Greatly afraid. And they also seemed to believe that Jonah would have the answer to their predicament. So they asked him. And the prophet tells them the harsh truth that it's only by throwing him in the sea God would leave them alone. The captain's reaction is quite remarkable. Well, the men as a whole, really. But we, we, we see in verse 13, it says, Nevertheless, the men rode hard to get back to dry land, but they could not. Now, even though this, this captain, you know, and the men, even though he's convinced throwing Jonah overboard will get Jehovah off their backs, he, he, he won't do it. He, he says to his men, there's no way we're doing that, fellas. He'll drown without a doubt. Grab the oars. We're going to row like mad. Now, taking control of the boat through rowing was unlikely to succeed. And God was not going to let up with that storm. And it, it won't, I hope, have escaped the notice of Jonah that these guys were doing everything they could to avoid him being killed. Even though these pagans knew it was Jonah's fault their lives were in danger, they had the courage and the grace to avoid harming him. But their efforts were doomed to failure. They, they abandoned their rowing. They knew what had to be done. And here's where it gets even more interesting. They start praying to God. Not their gods, but Jehovah himself knowing they'll have to sacrifice Jonah for the safety of the crew they beg Jehovah not to hold this against them they even acknowledge his sovereignty and what we see there is the pagans showing the the eternal moral principles of God in the human heart despite believing in all kinds of invented gods 
They knew deep down that to take the life of another was a serious matter. It's hard to, when we think about what Jonah said, it's hard to uh, be certain whether Jonah was making this confession because it was the beginning of a, uh, a period of repentance that would become more apparent when he was inside the fish or it was some it was something altogether less noble perhaps he saw this as a way for his life to be ended he'd be dead but at least he wouldn't have to preach to the scumbags of Nineveh anyway they throw him in they throw him overboard and then straight away straight away the storm settles down you remember when we were going through the book of Mark over this past year and a half how at one point Jesus calmed a storm uh, let's uh, re remind ourselves remind ourselves of, um, of the reaction of the uh, people and it's in Mark um, it's the fourth chapter of Mark and it's um, verse um, verse 41. Jesus had said, you know, peace, be still. And verse 41 says, And they were filled with great fear and said to one another, Who is this that even the wind and the sea obey him? So when we consider this great power God's, God has over, <clears throat> over the universe, it should give us confidence that he's able to save the most hardened rebel who, who lives. We should never think of a person that say, oh, God will never save him, or God will never save her. The God who has power over the elements has the power to fundamentally change the character of a person by the Holy Spirit. Can't each of us testify to that? Go and bear witness. Brothers and sisters, go and bear witness for God. There will be people out there who want to know about God, but no one's telling them. No shortage of people going to church and listening to sermons, but people who will tell them. Get out that comfort zone. and tell. There's very few. And... You know, th there could be people out there just waiting for someone to have the courage to tell them about how to get right with God through Jesus Christ, how to have their sins forgiven. When the sailors saw the storm calmed, they were overcome with fear. They feared the storm. They feared what Jonah had done in offending God. And now their fear reaches a peak because it was at this point they realised the real power of Jehovah and so it was they quite spontaneously offered up prayer and praise to the God who was above all gods. Jonah was the one who claimed to fear Jehovah but it was the pagan sailors 
who were most ready to offer up adoration and worship to him. Jonah snubbed God's command, but the pagans showed God due reverence. Now the Israelites who read about all this after the event would have been shocked to learn about the spiritual sensitivity of these heathen men. It would just undermine their belief that you know, the, the heathen were unworthy of God's favour because they weren't Israel. It would show them it's his purpose now to save people from among all the nations and not just Israel. The chapter ends with the well-known incident now with the giant sea creature, the whale or the shark or wherever it was. Swallowed Jonah. Well, it's in the knowledge that God is mighty that men and women learn to fear him. It's when they realise he has the power over life and death, they understand he's the one they have to face. He's the one they have to get right with. Fear of God is not spoken of so much today from the pulpits. Even when the churches take the gospel out to the lost, more often more often than not, it's the message that, you know, what a great friend Jesus is for them or can be. Now Christians are still people. Our natural inclinations are the same. We don't like confrontation. We prefer people to like us. We don't like people disliking us. And I think this might be why many Christians prefer a, a positive approach to witnessing rather than what they see as a negative approach. So a positive presentation would tell people God will be their friend if only they will allow him to be. It will sell the benefits of being a citizen of God's kingdom. It will use the promise of eternal life to incentivize people and in this way the world will, will think what nice people these Christians are and the Christians have the best of both worlds they get to witness but not be hated by the world now all those things are mentioned are partly true of course the person who turns to God in repentance will find God to be a great friend is their best friend. There are present benefits to being in God's kingdom, such as peace and joy through the knowledge of forgiveness of sins. And there is a wonderful eternity prepared for all those who trust in Jesus. All oh, that's true. But we must tell people what God is like as a whole, not just what he's like to those who become his friends, but what his attitude is right now to those who aren't. They need to know he's the creator of heavens and earth. They need to understand his almighty nature. They need to accept his absolute sovereignty in the management of his creation. They need to be told as they stand right now, they're under the condemnation of an angry God. Fear of God is a good thing. It's a beautiful thing. We're told it's fear of the Lord that leads to true wisdom. It's 
It's the rebels. It's the rebels' fear of God which will drive them to repent like the people of Nineveh and ask for mercy. And what if we don't tell people this, that God is awesome and terrible and almighty? What if they never learn that this God is the one who will judge all mankind? You know, even if we get them to make some kind of profession, what type of God will they be trusting in? Will they ever appreciate the sacrifice of Calvary if they have no idea of the awfulness of sin and God's holiness and therefore his hatred of it? My view might be a minority one in evangelicalism, but I'll be honest, I am all in favour of the people of this world being told there's a God to be feared. I believe we should tell them about how detestable sin is to God. We should shock them by telling them the perfect righteousness which is required for them to escape God's fury. We should warn them there most certainly is a judgment coming and they'll be present. No problem with telling them those things at all, despite how negative people say it is. What about you, Christian friends? Do you fear God? You might think it's inappropriate for a Christian who has access, you know, to the have access to the very throne room of God. It might seem inappropriate to, to fear him in any sense of the word. You might think fear is something to be felt by those who are still in rebellion to God. But I'd encourage you to fear him still. Yes, it's a different type of fear. The threat of destruction has gone. The God who's to be feared is now your father and you are his beloved child but fear him still remember his great power remember this great mercy he's shown to you and then you'll be able to approach him boldly in prayer yet all the while having a reverential fear because of who he is and then you can joyfully confess to him that he is a great God and greatly to be praised. Peace to the brethren and love with faith from God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Thank you all of you who've joined together with the small congregation of God as we consider his word. I pray that you might see beyond my words and see the truth of scripture and it might take a hold of you today and that you might have been blessed by it. I pray you will be blessed for the remainder of this day and for the week to come. And for those of you who will tune in next week, I shall see you then for the congregation. I shall see you, God willing, on Wednesday evening for our midweek Bible study. Um, so until then, brethren, 
uh, may the Lord um, bless you all mightily.